because right now I'm in the process of teaching my children when they hurt each other's feelings is and one apologizes to, for the other to not necessarily just say it's okay. Right. Exactly. You know, cause you're, you're affirming it's okay that you did that. And right. so just even the semantics of how we accept and give forgiveness is hugely uh, impactful on what happens in our hearts. And so I look forward to your forthcoming book, Articulate Forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> hopefully InterVarsity will green light that. I, I, we're, we're announcing it today. Um, so, exactly. and if you, even if you don't write it, then, then someone listening to this certainly will. So married, single, or some other weird 21st century way of describing relationships, you need to stick around for this entire episode because <laughs> relationships are everywhere. And so today, Dorothy Littell Greco and I are discussing marriage, but like I said, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of what relationship you're in, you need to stick around and listen to this entire thing because you're going to learn from it. Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. My name is Jeremy Jenkins. I'm your host, and I'm the founder and president of All Things All People, which exists to raise up generations of Christian thinkers to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. And this show is only one way that All Things All People does that. By letting you peek into, listen, eavesdrop, in on some conversations with interesting Christians about interesting things, really just to show you that you don't have to be a well-known Christian to be a Christian thinker. Because the only thing that sets apart the people who I interview for this show is that they have become well-known for doing the exact same thing you're doing right now as you're driving your car, listening at work, uh, listening as you fall asleep maybe, is that you desire to stop and think about the things happening around you. Today, yeah, we're talking about marriage and relationships, but last week we talked about uh, you know, conversations with non-believers and people who disagree with you. Next week with Frank Turek, we're going to be talking about uh, just some really pure apologetics and what that looks like. But no matter what, if you're a Christian thinker, you stop and think about how the person of Jesus and his good news has impacted your life and should impact everything you say, do, and think in this world. If you haven't liked and subscribed to the show on whatever platform you listen on, stop right now and do that. And if you're on Apple Podcasts especially, review the show. The most recent review, I'm looking at it right now, says super interesting. I love the content of this podcast. It is obvious that everything is well thought out and researched, and there are a variety of different people from different backgrounds featured on this show. Definitely recommend. Five stars. Thank you so much to the person who submitted that review. Uh, I take it very personally that the, that you recognize that I do research a lot for the people who come on the show because they are well worth it. But, but really, I research everything that we talk about on this show. Um, for the guest today, Dorothy Littell Greco, I read her book, um, and it was so good, uh, Marriage in the Middle, geared towards married couples who've been, uh, who've been married uh, for a little while longer. Um, but even myself, I've, been, I've only been married coming up on 10 years in June, June 18th to be specific. Make sure you remind me. Uh, whenever that comes around, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing book. But I loved reading it, and I loved that it was preparing me for the interview that you're about to hear. Um, so, like I said, if you haven't reviewed on Apple Podcasts, make sure you go do that. It really helps direct some people to the show. But no matter what, like, share, subscribe, review, all those other things. But you know what? The only thing that matters is that you're here today, listening to this episode, and I want to get right to it. Dorothy Littell Greco author of Marriage in the Middle with InterVarsity Press and our Christian thinker for today. My next guest has been featured in Christianity Today, Missio Alliance, Mops, Relevant Magazine, Christians for Biblical Equality, the Mudroom and Junia Project Sojourners, the Biola Center for Marriage and Family, Christine Kane Sophia, uh, Patheos, 
and many other publications. Her first book, Making Marriage Beautiful, was published by David C. Cook in January of 2017. Her second book and most recent, Marriage in the Middle, came out with InterVarsity Press in September of this year. Uh, and as having personally read it, I, I think it's wonderful. You need to go to Amazon in the show notes and pick it up right now. Both her spoken and written words offer hope and encouragement to those longing for healing, reconciliation, and joy. With three grown sons, two daughters-in-law, and a husband of 29 years, Christopher, she is certainly living out a life where she truly pra practices what she preaches in her marriage and in relationships today. It is my honor to have on the show, Dorothy Littell Greco. Dorothy, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to this conversation. Sure. Well, and, and, and I do too. Uh, when, when you and I first started dialoguing, um, I, I hadn't, unfortunately, as, as a man, I don't think I think about marriage as, as much as, as maybe I should. And, and when we first started talking about what might uh, you know, a Christian thinking podcast have to say about marriage, I started thinking it should probably have more to say than we, than we realize. Uh, you, your, your career has been founded on thinking or, you know, your, your author career, your dynamic person, photographer, speaker, author. Um, but these books that you've written are specifically um, about, about marriage. How, how have the last few years been writing on a topic that, I mean, even those of us who've been married for quite a while probably feel like we're by no means experts. Well, I will say that writing about marriage uh, really keeps my feet to the fire. So there have been moments when, you know, maybe Christopher and I are not doing well a couple days in a row when we're having a bad fight. And I think I have absolutely no integrity to talk about marriage. Yeah. So it really, you know, puts in the forefront, like Dorothy, you had better do the things that you talk about doing yeah. right now in your marriage. And I think that my husband would agree, it's actually improved our marriage, which sure. for me, I mean, that's kind of the litmus test, right? Yeah. Um, do I have enough integrity to write about things that I live out? So mm -hmm. I think that it's been challenging, though, Jeremy, in that... Um, as you referenced, many people tend to not think very deeply about marriage. It's an institution that we think about beforehand and maybe, you know, once a year going on a marriage retreat. But in general, I don't think that people have the kind of um, intentionality regarding marriage that they do about many other aspects of their life. And that's something that I particularly uh, feel passionate about um, addressing. Yeah. So as a, as a pastor, I, I'm in marriage counselings all the time, premarital mid-marital and unfortunately even sometimes post-marital and um, I find myself sometimes in my own flesh uh, feeling like I need to give a certain piece of advice but thinking oh I better not give that advice because I'm horrible at that or uh, or even just maybe feelings of guilt and shame that like last night I did that thing that I'm telling this guy not to do was there any points in writing these two books where you were you were tempted to just sort of leave something off the table so that you didn't have to deal, like let the Holy Spirit deal with what it, he was wanting to do with you. You know, I think at this age, so I'm 60 now, um, I can't let mm. things go. I, I'm so aware of the consequences when we let things go that I feel like that the Holy Spirit has me on a very short leash in some mm -hmm. sense. So yeah. even, you know, my husband and I do a lot of marriage counseling or coaching. And there are times when we'll be saying something to a couple and we'll both, we can tell, we both feel like, oh my gosh, we're not mm -hmm. doing this. Yeah. And, and those moments are sobering, but they're mm -hmm. also so helpful for us because they just kind of keep realigning us, keep bringing us back into a yeah. path where we say, this really matters. So I think rather than, you know, making me feel like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. It was the opposite effect. It made me quicker to confess and, and uh, have a stronger desire to work on the very things that I wanted to avoid. Right. And what's so interesting about you and, and your husband in these books is this last one, Marriage in the Middle, was geared towards uh, people in midlife. And, and you make the point of saying our 40s and 60s is not actually the middle of our life, um, <laughs> statistically speaking, but that's, the, that's what's been branded by psychologists and, and pop culture. And it's the time of our life where uh, people really struggle with identity and therefore their marriages struggle. But what's interesting to me about having read this book is there's so much in there that if there's someone listening and they're 18, maybe they're dating somebody, maybe they're not. Uh, it seems as if these years of marriage uh, 
in your own marriage and then now writing about marriage has, has given you the opportunity to speak across, across all spectrums of age. Has, has that seemed to be true for you that as you focused on an older demographic, now when you see younger couples in your church or even in your family, you kind of sometimes go, man, I wish I could tell you what someone, I wish someone had told me 40 years ago. Absolutely. You know, we, so as you mentioned, we have three sons, 27, 24, and 21, and the older two are married. And it's been a challenge for both me and Christopher to learn how to keep our mouths shut <laughs> to our married kids, because we do see things. I mean, they're both doing fine, but mm-hmm. we see them, the older couple, uh, they would admit this, that the first couple of years they married, were married, they fought about things they didn't need to fight about, you know, mm-hmm. really little tiny things. And Christopher and I would just kind of sit there and think like, oh my gosh, you guys, this is so not worth fighting over. Right. Um, and yes, I think that I do have, I have a strong passion to help younger couples think about how to be married well. Mm-hmm. Um, how not to get embedded in really bad patterns, because oftentimes when we're seeing people who have been married 20, 30, even 40 years, that's the main issue is they've gotten into these ruts, these bad patterns, and they don't, at this point, they don't even know how to extricate themselves. Yeah. So yeah, I think speaking to couples, Christopher and I do pre- premarital classes and, and one-on-one um, work with couples. And we actually love doing premarital classes because yeah. it feels like it's such an opportunity to help these two people lay a foundation that will be strong and firm, mm-hmm. and carry them through the storms of life. Yeah. I, I sometimes can struggle with premarital because I sometimes feel like um, only having been married, you know, now nine years, um, I, I've just learned to speak the language of marriage. And so it, trying to explain it to a 20 something year old who, who is almost like, I, I go, I don't know how to explain this to you, but your life's about to drastically change and it's going to be great, but sometimes it won't. And, <laughs> you know, and so, so yeah, these years, these years of perspective that you and Christopher have had really show through in the, in the, in these books. Um, and, and specifically I want to dive in because the way you describe not just marriage, but relationships. Because really, when we talk about marriage, sometimes we make it too much about marriage. A lot of what's true about marriage is should bleed out into even our platonic relationships mm-hmm. um, with our friends, with the people we go to church with and, and who we work right. with. But you wrote in Marriage in the Middle, we cannot survive without others. Though we are the most intelligent species on earth, we are also the most dependent on parental care for the longest period of time. By intentionally designing human development in this fashion, God gives us the opportunity to learn how to bond with others so we can gradually move toward having reciprocal relationships. And this idea of our design pointing us towards reciprocal relationships, first of all, it fits beautifully in with this idea of we don't think deeply enough of marriage because we begin to see here some serious theology come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it's foundational to any biblical understanding of relationship and marriage, this idea of reciprocal. And so what should, in your opinion, uh, and maybe even just your experience of counseling and seeing in your own life, what should that reciprocating process look like in, in, in a marriage or relationship that's seeking to glorify God? Well, I guess when I, when I read through Genesis, you know, one and two in particular and see God's design, God's intention for us is that we're co-creators and that we're mutual. Mm -hmm. So seeing that, as um, partnership, and it doesn't have to be a marriage partnership, you know, it could be a partnership of two people who are working together, um, Mm -hmm. two people who are partnering together in ministry, where they are seeking to reflect God's image to the world, and they're seeking to um, be co-creators, to think like, how can we use all the gifts that the Lord has given us to bring something to fruition. And I think, you know, personally, too many people, I've heard too many people say, you know, I'm just not creative. And I just think, that is a lie from the pit mm-hmm. of hell, right? Mm-hmm. If you're created in God's image, then we are creative people. So your creativity might not look like my creativity, but you're creative because if you solve problems, if you make dinner every night, that's creativity. Mm-hmm. We have to put aside the box that, you know, being creative means to be, you know, quote unquote, an artist, somebody who just paints pictures or writes music. That's one thing. And then the mutuality aspect, I think, is really foundational for us, that we don't have hierarchies of, you know, this person is better than that person. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see each other as mutual and really, you know, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, right? There isn't mm-hmm. any sense of um, 
somebody's up on a podium. We're all on an equal on mm -hmm. an equal footing. That in uh, I think engenders a respect, a mutual respect for yeah. one another, which then we can work hard to to see who the other person is, to support the other person, and to help them live a life that is really um, very rich and very fulfilling. Yeah. So with that in mind, then this idea of uh, a mutual submission of sorts and this reciprocal understanding of creativity and, and, and respect. Um, what do you make then I, I, of the, the, the gender role discussion or complementarianism versus egalitarianism? I, I don't, I've noticed in your writing, you don't get hindered by that quite a bit, um, which I, I appreciate um, ha having gone you know, to Christian university now for, you know, 10 years. And it seems like that's always on everyone's mind. Okay. Are you a complementarian or an egalitarian? And it seems as if the field is coming away from that a little bit and really just asking, okay, if my marriage looks like what the Bible tells us it should look like, then I'll do this. Mm -hmm. um, and so what kind of do you make of that gender role discussion and how have you approached that in in things like your writing, but also your counseling with married couples or premarital. Yeah, we could spend an hour just talking. <laughs> right. <about yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. let me see how quickly I can condense all of the thoughts that are currently swimming through my head. Um, one is I would say that those two terms are very binary and I don't mm -hmm. know that I so much appreciate um, just saying I'm only this or I'm only this because mm -hmm. I do see that men and women are different and I do see that some of the differences are by design obviously anatomically you know mm -hmm. it's right yeah <laughs> kind of hard to argue with that right mm -hmm. but but at the same time I don't see a whole lot of rigid gender roles in scripture mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of places where women do things that are you know often associated with what men would do. Mm -hmm. There are often places where it's, it's the other way around. So even if you think about, you know, here we are coming into Advent, Joseph left his work to support Mary's calling. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody ever talks about that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right? So there, I think that there's, there's a lot of examples in scripture where there's things that um, maybe we wouldn't expect if we're really looking for them. And mm -hmm. then, and I'm really grateful for the work of Carolyn Custis James in this mm. regard, because I feel like that she does a fabulous job of um, helping us to see these kind of things. So not putting ourselves in rigid gender roles is helpful. So in our yeah. marriage, uh, you know, I grew up with a father who was a, a repairman. He mm -hmm. could fix anything. Anything that was wrong, my dad could fix. My dad worked all the time. So if I wanted to spend time with my dad, I often went on jobs with him when, mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And that means that I come into the marriage with the capacity to put a new dishwasher in. Mm -hmm. And my husband, on the other hand, his father was um, an administrator in the Air Force. He would get enraged every time he tried to fix something. So mm -hmm. what Christopher learned is stay away from anything that's broken. <laughs> Or hire somebody, you know, so those are two very different ways. Um, you know, typically the man would be the one who's supposed to fix things and the woman right. is, is not. But I, for whatever reason, I have more mechanical aptitude than he does. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be a disservice for us and for our marriage if I were to say, you know, you're the head of the house, therefore you should fix things. Sure. Again, I think that's a cultural expectation that I don't see that supported in scripture. So yeah. Our counsel typically is pay attention to the, the ways that your culture has informed your expectations for gender and don't let culture um, mm -hmm. be greater than scripture. Yeah. And, and begin perhaps to discern what things are in scripture for various genders, various roles, husband and wife, but then yeah. begin to separate that from, from that cultural aspect. Cause I think that's genius because I would say most of what we, ex what we, as I mean, obviously there, like you said, there are not many rigid gender roles, but there are, there are some things that scripture does instruct, but apart from that, almost all of it is uniquely cultural um, right. or, or even a personal preference in our own right. minds. Right. Um, and like you said, familial, I think most of what we carry into marriage is familial to a certain degree. That's where we get our culture in large part. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. And in the book um, you make a point at the very beginning uh, or near the beginning to, to draw the lines and say a lot of what we're going to talk about in this book. And I would assume even in your, your counseling and in your teaching and in your speaking comes down to uh, the concepts of, of malleability, resilience, and engagement. And mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating, specifically malleability, because 
in, in my opinion, we live in a world right now where identity politics are at play. Um, the idea of quote unquote, finding yourself is extremely important. And in that, with that in mind, I would say malleability sometimes gets thrown out the window. The idea that I would be flexible or be willing to uh, bend quite literally some, you know, to the needs of somebody else. So why did you include malleability in that? Why is that so important in marriage and in relationships? Well, I think that all of the, all three of those traits are really important, particularly in midlife, yeah. but by no means are they the only traits that are important. Right. But um, if you think about malleability as it connects to science, mm-hmm. so gold, uh, there's certain metals that are more malleable than others. Gold yeah. is something that, you know, you can pound it and pound it and pound it and pound it and make it just like wafer, wafer thin. Yeah. Um, and it still maintains its properties of being gold, where yeah. zinc if you hit it, it's just completely smashes and, you know, into many little pieces. Mm -hmm. So if we think about how can we allow our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our children, you know, on Mm -hmm. outward um, to, to shape us, what are the, what are the ways that the stresses of life, the stresses of marriage, the conflicts of marriage can help me to, um, you know, even think about it as rounding off the rough edges and Mm -hmm. becoming, becoming more smooth, becoming more adaptable, because, you know, life really requires us to be adaptable. And boy, hasn't this year taught all of us, that, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like the ways that our normal has changed are just staggering. And so there's a level at which we, we all really need to be malleable. We, all, we need to allow the circumstances, the relationships to change us and to shape us. Um, you know, maybe another word that we could think about there is adaptability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your experience, have you found in, in specifically in marriage, and then it's usually going to be in marriages that have, are not new, um, where someone views the idea of being malleable and being willing to be smoothed out at the rough edges and, and so on and so on. Have you seen many people who have said, well, that's unfair. I shouldn't have to, to change or I shouldn't have to be the one to be rounded off. And that's maybe where d- division comes in is that somebody says, cause I've seen it is, is, well, no, they need to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so how, how best in our marriages can we mutually say, yeah, you need to change, but, but I need to change too, or I need to, to be rounded off at, at the rough places. How, how does that come about where you have that mutual expression of malleability? Well, first, let me just add this, you know, what might feel like an obvious point is there are some places where we need not change, right? The places where we're saying we want honesty and we want fidelity, those Mm. should not be. Right, right. Don't be malleable in transparency. Um, Or, and on the other hand, like if one spouse is addicted or one Mm. spouse is being unfaithful, um, any of those kind of sins, like they do need to change and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need to just say, oh, well, you know, that's who they are. Right, so I'm yeah. not by any means promoting that. Um, now I forget what your question was. Well, <laughs> mutuality. No, the, yeah, the mutuality. And I think that was a, a great lead into it because I think that's a, an important distinction to make is, and maybe that's how we counter the, the offensive idea of, of a culture that maybe looks at Christianity and says, um, you no, you need to worry about yourself. I was in a counseling situation just recently where somebody kept saying, I've finally found myself mm-hmm. and now I need to leave my spouse. Okay. And, and it's like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. <laughs> um, you know, and what you're saying is, no, there's definitely times where he's wrong or she's wrong. So they, the other one doesn't need to change. But in those times where it's just, man, the people are butting heads and they, and and they just can't see anything out of eye. How do you express to couples where you say really both of you need to be smoothed off? Yeah, I think that you're, you're really spot on and seeing how uh, our current cultural's emphasis on finding oneself uh, really can be very damaging for marriages. So let me just talk about that briefly in two ways. One is if there's a marriage where um, one spouse has been really dominant and really, um, sort of oppressive, you know, I think of mm-hmm. an abusive relationship. Yeah. In that situation, for a woman, it's, it's often a woman, though not always, sure. for a woman to say, enough, 
you know, I have been in this marriage, I have been praying for 10 years, I have sought counseling, this person is going to keep abusing me. I think there's a there's an element of her finding her voice there that's really important and really should be heated. So mm -hmm. that's one thing. Um, but in the places where we seek to find who we are apart from our spouse, if we've already been joined together as yeah. one, there's something about that that feels very false and very like pop psychology. Yeah. Um, even the notion of somebody, you know, we have mutual friends, multiple mutual friends in the past five years who husbands have left their wives, Christian marriages, yeah. kids involved, um, because they said that they feel like that they just don't really love this person anymore. And they've mm -hmm. you know, decided that they shouldn't have to be in the marriage. Yeah, I think, well, you know, fair enough, that's your choice. But that's certainly opposed to scripture. And it certainly is going to limit the amount of growth and maturity that you have as a human being, because mm -hmm. what it means for us to become like Christ is that we choose again and again and again on a daily and sometimes on a minute by minute basis to say, I value you as much as I value myself or even yeah. more than myself. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And few of us will have to actually, you know, die physically. Right. We, we do die on an emotional, on emotional basis, on a spiritual basis when we say, you know, I don't really want to be intimate with you tonight, but I know that you really do. So I'm going to put my, my desire to sit with a book aside and, and choose to be intimate with you or, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever um, illustration you yeah. want to get there. Right. Sure. Yeah. I, I almost feel like in, in <laughs> my wife might be uh, upset with me for saying this, but I mean, it's, it's almost as if sometimes the emotional dying is it can be more difficult than the idea of the physical aspects of giving up things. I mean, for me personally, I'm not uh, an extremely emotional person. And so sometimes early, especially early on in my marriage, I had to choose to be emotional. Mm -hmm. Like I had to choose through love for my wife to say, I'm going to allow this to like, like when the Grinch's heart gets a little bit bigger, like I'm going to allow this to make its way to my heart so that yeah. I can feel what she's feeling. And that, that concept of choosing that you just hit on is so integral to Christian marriage or, or just good marriages in general too, because, um, you know, it seems as if more and more, like you said, in Christian marriages, we're seeing the exact same problems as we're seeing in, in ones that have no basis in the church or, or scripture. But um, one thing that you, you talk about in the book, and it, and it stems from this foundational understanding of malleability and engagement and resilience is, okay, then what do we do with disappointment? Mm. And certainly anybody who's been married for any amount of time, or maybe you're listening to this and you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you want one, and, you know, uh, you have a friend. I mean, we've all had disappointments in relationships. And uh, there's a, a section of the book that was just wonderfully written, but then also just inherently truthful. You said how we respond to disappointments can make or break our marriage. If we fail to address them, disappointments can accumulate and morph into disillusionment, despair and resentment. For this complicated feeling to have any payoff, we must not view it as an inconvenience or irritation, but as an invitation to grow. By accepting this invitation, we can learn to wholeheartedly love our spouse without needing them to become someone else. Now, Dorothy, if I'm, not, if I'm the first one to say this, uh, I, I, I'm, I apologize, but that's easier said than done, of course. Um, you know, this idea of when you're irritated, when you're disappointed, when you're angry, to stop and say, you know, this is an invitation to grow. Um, that's not my knee-jerk reaction, of course. And uh, I'm, I'd, I'd assume you would even say it's not yours or Christopher's either. So, so how then have you seen it done best that we stop and look around and say, I'm going to grow through this disappointment, this anger, this disillusionment, and not just let it become bitterness or resentment? How have you seen that done in your years of writing and, and talking about marriage? Um, there's a couple things that I'd, I'd love to throw out. One is, um, you know, the long term. So Christopher and I've had multiple, you know, people in our lives in their 80s and just seeing where they landed there. I'll give two specific examples. His grandmother um, lost her husband when she was in her 50s. And from that point on, just grew increasingly bitter. Mm. She was really impossible to be around. Just mm. everybody, everybody would be, you know, uh, a victim to her fury mm never doing anything right. She would recall things that happened 
30, 40 years ago as if they just happened yesterday. So full of unforgiveness. And then there was this other woman who Christopher was his landlord before we got married and she lost her hearing when she was in her twenties through, um, I'm going to forget what it was, measles or mumps or something, and then was unable to have children. She was the most cheerful person, the most joy-filled person, the most sacrificial person, like everybody wanted to be with Mabel, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these two very polar opposites and think like, how did she get here? And how did she get here? And one is the road of, you know, forgiveness and growth and transformation. And the other is the road of bitterness and resentment. So having those two polar opposite um, end goals in mind helps for one, but two, to understand that, you know, we all have disappointments. Being disappointed in a marriage does not mean that you're incompatible, does not mean that yeah. there's something gravely wrong. Most of the time, it's, it's intimately connected to the expectations that we have that we brought into marriage, right? Because disappointment is simply a feeling that we have when an expectation that we carry or a hope that we have doesn't get met. Mm-hmm. So if we can see, if first we have to recognize what disappointment looks like because it looks different on all of us. You know, sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's irritation, sometimes it's um, sarcasm. For me, when I'm sarcastic, that's like a red flag to say, you know, Dorothy, there's something going on here. Um, so it requires us to have enough self-awareness where we can identify what's happening right now is is as a result of my disappointment. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and that requires us to do to do our work, right? Is to yeah. pay attention, like what are the common conflicts that a couple has? And I'll just give you two quick examples. So again, it's from my husband's family. Um, his parents and, and uh, were were visiting his aunt and uncle. The aunt pulled out some ice cubes from a freezer tray, and the tray was empty. <laughs> and she just lit into her husband. And, and went on and on and on about all the ways that he, you know, he never fills up the ice cube tray and he never does this and he never does that. And finally, my mother-in-law just said, it's not the ice cubes, mm-hmm. right? They were symbolizing her feeling of him not doing things sacrificially for her. Yeah. So, you know, we have to tune in and say, what are the, what are the routine conflicts that we have over and over and over again and step back and say, what are they about? And, you know, you might need professional counseling help to figure that out because sometimes we don't have enough objectivity to be able to say, this is not about the ice cubes, that it's about something much deeper. Um, So it could be as simple as, you know, when when we came into marriage, one of my hopes, you know, Christopher, one of the things that's most attractive to me about him is that he loves Jesus passionately. So my assumption was that we would be praying together for long periods of time, like every day. Mm -hmm. Well, he's more contemplative. He likes to go for walks and pray for hours. But if, if I say, you know, let's sit down and pray five minutes, maybe 10 minutes is pretty much all he can really stay engaged with. Mm -hmm. And that was really disappointing to me for a long time. And and in that disappointment, I moralized my preference. Like I judged Mm -hmm. him and made him feel bad because he didn't do the, want to do the thing that I wanted to do because after all it was prayer and you know, you're a Christian. You have to pray. (laughs) So that moralizing then charged the whole thing and made it about, you know, much more than what it was, Mm -hmm. right? So paying attention, what are the conflicts? What's underneath of the conflicts? What are the conflicts representing? And how are they giving you an opportunity specifically to grow? Um, I think that's the way to best handle it. Yeah. And in something you said that I think is, I mean, we need to put on posters in our youth group and college ministry walls and in, in the young adult Sunday school, whatever it might be is the expectations game. Um, the, the best advice I got uh, before I got married was have realistic expectations for each other and really be curious enough to look at your own expectations and say, is that fair? Is that realistic? And, and when I do that, you sort of put your spouse in a matrix and you say about 70% of what I'm expecting them to do, they, they have no, I mean, you know, there's no earthly reason why they should assume that they should be doing those things. And so, um, I mean, how would you encourage, like, so let's say it might be a younger couple or maybe a a premarital, which obviously you and Christopher do quite a bit. How do you get people to kind of step outside of themselves and realize what expectations are fair and what expectations are not fair? 
That's, that's, that is the crux of the matter, right? Yeah. And again, because many of us come into marriage with tons of expectations and we even have expectations about our expectations, yeah. right? So oftentimes we don't realize we have expectations. It's just like the way we live our lives. And it isn't until the expectation gets dashed, maybe repeatedly, that we begin to um, sense that there's something going on there. So mm-hmm. one example of a, a place where my husband and I have had early on just a ton of conflict. So he's from an Italian American family, um, very Latin. Uh, he has what we call time optimism. He thinks sure. he thinks time is like an option, you mm-hmm. know, it's like the passing of time yeah. just kind of happened. And, you know, he'll be working and then pop his head up and say, wait, what time is it? You know, has no concept Mm -hmm. of what's happening. He's very in the moment. I, on the other hand, am German and English. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go to Germany and England, what's on the outside of most of the buildings? Right. Yeah. Clocks. Yeah. (laughs) So I have like a a very strong, very to the second internal clock and time is important to me. So early on when we were married, he would repeatedly be late for dinner. You know, we'd we'd establish what time is dinner going to be? And then six o'clock. And this was pre-cell phone. Um, not pre-email, but pre-cell phone. He would then come home half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes even an hour and a half late. And, you know, there I am with little kids, having spent most of my day with them and just feeling like, doggone it, like, I need you to be home. Mm -hmm. So he would walk in the door and immediately, like I was in his face. Um, And it it wasn't until many years later, seriously, like it took us years to deconstruct this. What I realized, so I grew up in a household where my father was an alcoholic. We didn't know what shape he was going to be in until he walked through the door at dinner time. He was often late at dinner time. That was the most stressful, um, difficult time of the day for me as a kid is wondering how, you know, is dad going to be drunk or sober and how is mom going to respond? So all of that, I knew it, you know, and I felt like I had processed my stuff with my dad. But this conflict with Christopher just brought it all up and made me realize, oh, I have a lot more forgiving work to do of my father. Wow. And when I finally, like when that finally dawned on me, A, I was crushed, you know, and I was so, I was just weeping in repentance to, to, for, in front of Christopher saying, I'm so sorry that I foisted all of this historic stuff on you. And I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that obviously gave me, a, you know, just a tremendous opportunity for more healing. And then after that, you know, it was like, it's not that big of a deal if you're late. If you can right. let me know, it's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But like I was responding on a level 10 and, mm-hmm. and his defense was like a level two. Sure. So I think that's one of the ways for people to pay attention. Like how are, are there places where you're overreacting to something mm-hmm. that really isn't that important? And if mm-hmm. that's the case, is that really about an expectation? What are the yeah. places where you're judging your spouse? Where are you having the same conflict again and again and again? And if you can trace it backwards, I think that probably a lot of those things will be connected to your expectations. Sure. And taking it back once again to um, mutuality and even malleability, I would assume that now knowing all of these things, this historic suffering that you've been kind of going through latently, uh, while you are the one that had to forgive, it would be easy for Christopher to say, okay, problem solved. Now on his side, he probably tries not to be late because he knows what it does to you, you know, even though you've quote unquote forgiven and gotten through these things. And so they're, they're again taking us back to the foundation, which is, there's a mutuality to it. If you want your relationship and your marriage to be founded on the basis of scripture, it's not enough for Christopher to say, okay, you forgave. So now, you know, we're, we're like Jesus now, you know, it's no like true forgiveness and and grace comes from, okay, I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to try not to cause my, my sister in Christ, even though she's my wife to stumble. And so to listeners, I, I think once again, we need to trace that back and say, maybe you're listening to this and you say, I need my wife to listen to this so that she'll ease up on me on this one thing she's constantly mad at. And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's a constant giving and taking. Um, Can I just go ahead. It's the um, empathy I think is what's key there. Right. So -hmm. when Christopher understood the amount of inner torment that I had when he was late, Uh, and was able to get into a place of being empathetic with me, suddenly it wasn't just my wife is overreacting and being unreasonable. It was, 
oh, this is really hard yeah. for her. And how can I love her in the midst of this? Yeah. And, and honestly, you know, the time management thing is still an issue for us. Sure. It's less an issue now because he understands and he at least will be proactive. And mm-hmm. now he can text me right, yeah, to say, yeah. hey, you know, the counseling appointment went really late. I'm sorry, I'll be home, you know, mm-hmm. at the time. So he's much better. He's grown and I've grown. And it's, yeah. I think for him, it was empathy that provided the impetus to grow. Yeah. For, for my wife and I, there was a point early on in our marriage. I don't think she would mind me sharing this, but um, is she's really bad about losing her phone, you know, so mm-hmm. it might end up in a couch cushion or, and she's, she's not glued to her phone, which is one thing I really admire about her. Whereas I const, I know where mine is all the time. And I would continually get mad at her and say, you know, that phone was however much money. Why, why, you know, I I tried to call you and there was a point about maybe three or four years into our marriage. And she said, for the rest of our lives, I'm going to be bad about losing my phone. Um, If you choose to get mad at me every single time, we're going to have a million arguments. And it was like a light bulb went off and I went, you know, you're right. (laughs) So it's still, I mean, it's still difficult because I don't lose anything. And, uh, and, and I moralize that I'm moralized. Oh, you're irresponsible because your right. phone's on the other side of the house where right. well, she just doesn't really want to be bothered. And so they kind of, yeah, that in the expectation game goes even to the mo- more minute details of our life. And that's why maybe 80% of arguments between married couples really are superficial things that they've allowed to just drive them crazy. So, um, the, one of the most heartfelt sections of the book and it was probably the part that impacted me the most, but was in all likelihood, maybe the most difficult for you to write was writing about the loss of your father. Mm. And in, there was this, this part where you describe uh, the going through the process of losing him, someone unexpectedly. And, and you talk about, you have this phrase where you say it's these liminal moments uh, that are invitations to the, you know, these, this holy moment. And it only happens once. And, um, liminality is a concept I'm quite familiar with in, in my studies academically. And for listeners, liminality is this idea of being, uh, there's an anthropologist named Victor Turner who would say it's betwixt and between. It's, it's, this, it's this in-between state. So, so marriage is liminal at your wedding day. There, mm-hmm. you're, you're neither a bachelor nor a husband. You know, you're in between. And I had never thought of marriage in this way as as I had when I was reading you describing the loss of your father and how really going through these once in a lifetime moments of losing loved ones, losing parents, um, you know, this the common everyday sufferings even, uh, these liminal moments that I go through as an individual, that's really what marriage is, is that my wife promised to go through them with me. And, and so I just thought that was a phenomenally uh, impactful section of the book where you talk about that. Can you describe just, I mean, and it's one of the same thing as you could probably go on for an hour about it, but how do married couples best handle these drastic life change moments together when really like we, when we sign up to be married, we think that our vows are quite simple, really. We think I'm going to love you to, to the day I die and, and, and we're never going to leave each other. But really the nitty gritty is even when you are going through the worst possible moment of your life, I'll be next to you. So, right. so, so what advice do you give to couples that are going through these, these really drastic life change seasons? And you and your husband have gone through quite a few of them. Sometimes in the process of a month, you go through dropping your son off at college and then losing loved ones and major life changes. So, so how best can we seek to go through those together? Yeah, well, I I don't know whether you agree, would agree with me here, but I would say that there's also amazing, beautiful liminal moments, like having a child, right? The sort of moments that are just transcendent. They mm-hmm. pull us up and out of the everyday world that we live in. They give us sort of a, you know, it's like the yeah. curtain gets pulled back and we get to see and experience God in a, in a very powerful and hopefully a very transformative way. So I think that um, choosing to be on the same team again and again and again, you know, the, the story that I opened the book with where I chronicle what happened for us over the right. course of several months was devastating. Yeah. And the losses just continued um, one after another. And there were moments where, you know, all we could do was just hold each other's hand. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, we were spent, we were confused. We didn't understand like why wasn't God intervening. Um, 
So choosing to actively encourage one another, sometimes just in tiny, tiny little ways, like me putting a little note in um, his computer so that when he opened it up the next morning, you know, just said, I don't know what's going to happen in the next week, but I just want you to know that I really love you and I really respect the ways that you're going through this with me. Um, so those tiny little things that sometimes can be lifelines, mm -hmm. reaching out for help, I think is really important in those moments because sometimes we're, we're just so uh, emptied by the losses and by the things that have yeah. been hurtful that um, we don't realize how little we have to give each other. And mm -hmm. sometimes we really need to have somebody else come in and, and to stand with us. You know, I think about the, the ways um, that friends came around us during that season. And honestly, if it weren't for them, I think that he, Christopher was, was depressed for mm -hmm. a good portion of that year. Um, if we hadn't had the kind of friends that we did and, and reached out to them, because obviously friends don't always know what you need, right. um, that would have been, I think, a huge loss for us. And then looking to the big picture, what is God doing in this? Sometimes it's impossible to know, but if we can choose even, you know, even just for a millisecond every day to say, God is here and God is good, mm -hmm. that somehow refutes what the enemy would want us to believe is that God has abandoned us. God doesn't care about us. Your faith is a joke. You know, you're doing all this praying, etc. It's worthless. If we can just continue to say God is good and God loves us yeah. and we're going to get through this, there's a way that that's like, you know, sort of an infusion of a, a vitamin into our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and it just continues to help us keep going because sometimes, you know, all we can do is just keep going. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And there, you, you have this little anecdote in the book where you, you picture in seasons like that, where I think I would imagine every married couple has gone through at least a handful of seasons where uh, this is true because you have this little anecdote where you say it's like both of you are hanging off of a cliff and you're both doing everything you can to hold on. And one of you looks at the other and says, I hope that you're doing well because I can't help you at all. And, <laughs> and that was like maybe the first page or the second page. And I thought, I'm really going to like this book because <laughs> it, that's it. You know, we sometimes sugarcoat marriage and, and conflict resolution and, and all these things. And, and sometimes it is just like you said, a little note in a laptop that's because that's all it is. That's all you could do that day. I'm right, sure right. is you say, all I can do is tell you that I love you. All you can do is tell you that whatever I can do, I'm going to give it, but, but I really don't have much to give today, <laughs> you know? And, and so, yeah, it's a really beautiful picture really of, of, of the gospel, but really exemplifying maybe our shortcomings more than anything of saying there's just seasons where, I'm going to give you everything I have, but I don't really have anything. Um, <laughs> and so, so, so yeah, but well, I, I, I could go on and, and there's so many other things that I'd love to talk to you about. So maybe we have to do this again sometime and talk Let's about conflict and, and forgiveness and these things that there's probably listeners really hoping, you know, who's, who don't realize that their marriage is struggling and, and they don't know what to do, but so we'll have to do that another time. But what I want to finish with is for someone listening who maybe, maybe they are younger, maybe they're married or they're not, but they're listening to you and saying, that sounds like somebody who, who I would really love to, you know, talk to what, what's like the number one piece of advice that you would give just to somebody, maybe a young couple who's considering getting married. And, um, and you would just say, listen, if Christopher and I had had this said to us, uh, however many years ago, it would have gotten us off on a much better foot. Um, what, what would be that piece of advice? Maybe there's one or two. Um, cause I know that somebody who thinks about marriage as much as you probably has a hard time dialing it down to one, but what was, what's the, the, the main piece of advice that you would give to a younger couple considering marriage? Wow. That is hard to boil it down to one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess maybe the most important thing that I would say would be to practice forgiveness on a regular basis and be really thorough um, and very articulate about it. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we'll have a dust up or something will happen and we're, you know, we're not nice to each other. We're not charitable to each other. We withhold from each other. And then we just go on with life. And when we don't address those little things, the little things really add up to be big things. Mm -hmm. So for instance, for me, pretty much every night, I will practice a form of the daily exam and where I just simply say to the Lord, like, how did I do today? Mm -hmm. uh, 
and then I'm just quiet and I wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm believing that the Holy Spirit is going to put um, the Holy Spirit's finger on something. And there'll be moments where I feel like the response is, you know, you were kind of harsh with your husband today. Mm. And I'll feel like, yeah, that's true. Mm. And then I have a, you know, a choice to make. So am I just going to swallow that? Or am I going to turn to my husband and say, I was really harsh with you today. And I'm so sorry. Will you yeah. forgive me? Mm -hmm. So being specific and saying, I'm sorry for, and I forgive you for, I think it sort of cleanses us and it wipes the slate clean so that these things don't add up. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess the second piece of advice would be ask for help, right? Yeah. That we, as we started the show, we talked about the importance of being in community, of being interdependent. Um, though marriage is a very unique institution, I don't think that the Lord's expectation is for us to live it out just as a twosome. Yeah. Although in the pandemic, you know, that's yeah. what a lot of right, us are yeah. having to do, right? Um, but reach out for help whenever you feel stuck. If ever you feel like, you know, this is not going well, you don't know how to do parenting things. Mm -hmm. uh, constantly seeing that needing is not bad. Like God created mm -hmm. us to need. So don't despise your needs pay attention to your needs. And when something isn't going well, either make sure that you talk with your spouse about it, or again, you know, go to counseling, bring somebody else in so that yeah. you're not trying to walk this out alone. Yeah. Yeah. That Dorothy, that's a, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of you in an, an amazingly unique piece of advice that I don't know that I've ever heard anybody give, but articulate forgiveness. Um, I think that that's something that, I mean, all of, Christendom needs to hear is, is, is like, cause right now I'm in the process of teaching my children when they hurt each other's feelings and is, and one apologizes to, for the other to not necessarily just say it's okay. Right. Exactly. You know, cause you're, you're affirming it's okay that you did that. And right. so just even the semantics of how we accept and give forgiveness is hugely uh, impactful on what happens in our hearts. And so I look forward to your forthcoming book, Articulate Forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> hopefully InterVarsity will green light that. I, I, we're, we're announcing it today. Um, so, exactly. and if you, and if you don't write it, then, then someone listening to this certainly will. So, um, but Dorothy, uh, like I said, we'll have to do this again because this was uh, like a counseling session for me. My wife will be very thankful <laughs> for you uh, today as I go home and, and be a better husband and father. But, um, but I, I am very appreciative of the time. I think that the listeners, no matter where they're at in life, will be blessed by hearing uh, the wisdom that you and Christopher have developed over these years of you know, co-laboring together and, and being married and then also ministering in marriage. And so uh, if, if somebody's listening and they want more, um, go uh, buy Marriage in the Middle um, and Mar Making Marriage Beautiful. Those are in the show notes and uh, ready for you to purchase. Check out Dorothy's website, which is also in the notes and follow her on, on social media. Um, Dorothy, thank you so much for, for giving me some of your time today. I, it was wonderful. This was a great conversation and do let's have it again. Awesome. Thank you.